0: Some things happened there in that what I noticed was the core of humanity wasn't money. The core of humanity was people.
1: Hello, I'm Andrew May, and this is the NAB Business Fit podcast. In this series, we chat with experts in a range of fields, delving into their world to find out what fuels them and applying those lessons to people running a small business. We chat about how they've adjusted to the new ways of working, and we share stories about adapting and navigating through challenging times. I'm a performance strategist and a leadership coach. What that really means is I love seeing people reach their full potential, and that is exactly why we have started this podcast. Today's guest I know very well. He's actually been by my side in five different business iterations for 15 years. I'm going to go to my notes because when you know someone well, you sometimes miss the important bits. Uh, He originally trained as a specialist intensive care RN before undertaking his doctoral studies looking at the impact of stress on human physiology and cardiovascular risk factors. We're going to delve into that today. He's associate professor and director of research education in the health and medicine faculty at Sydney University. He's adjunct professor professor at Southern Cross University. There are so many titles here. We might be here all morning. He's also research director at Strive Stronger. He's renowned as one of the world's leading experts on the impact of stress on human function and especially how we adapt and cope to major stressors. Pretty pertinent time to be talking about this. He's written over 100 publications, research-based evidence, peer-reviewed, journals are around 80. He's the co-author of the book with me, Matchfit. Uh, He's the father of two busy athletic boys, Liam and Callum, and he loves walking bare feet. He's got shoes on today and you can catch him walking around parks and plains and ovals and terrains doing grounding. Dr. Tom Buckley, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Morning.
1: Now, I can ask you loads of different questions. As I mentioned, we've been working together for 15 years, but I really want to go down a pathway today, because we could talk for hours and hours, right? You're very passionate about science, and you've really injected science into our business as well. We have a research institute, so we are very evidence-based. We want it to be engaging and fun and playful, but there's a real rigour. I've never asked you this. Uh, Where does this all come from? So what happened normally it's a young kid, but was there an incident or did something happen as a young farm boy in, in Ireland uh, to get this passion about human performance and stress and coping? Where does all that come from?
0: It's a great question and it probably doesn't come from one thing. It's something that builds over your lifetime. I think we are all influenced by our upbringing and I, I, you know, I grew up on a farm. Um, you know, my father was a very good critical thinker a very lateral thinker in the farm. and so you kind of you, you see that modelling of thinking outside the box, of encouraging you to think as a child, encouraging you to work problems out. So I, I tend to be quite a good problem solver. I'm quite inquisitive. That inquisition came to a point when I was twelve, and um, you know, when I was twelve, I spent nearly six months in an oncology ward um, uh, with a, with Hodgkin's disease, and. In there, I, I developed something that I think some people develop at other times in their life. I developed a real, real understanding of what was core to humanity. You know, you, you don't know this, and I haven't shared this, but my son's called Liam. And when I was 12 in hospital, uh, my best buddy in hospital was Liam as well. I lived, he didn't. Wow. So so he, and his
1: name was Liam. His
0: name is Liam. And I didn't recognize until after I'd called my son Liam, why I really liked the name Liam, and it just came back to me, these memories of back then. Some things happened there in that what I noticed was that the core of humanity wasn't money. The core of humanity was people. The people around me that that that, that were with me 24-7 were were the oncology nurses, and to me, they were just angels. They were just, and this inquisition about what are they doing? That brings comfort. That brings healing, and and studies later have shown, you know, in a hospital setting, that if you position the patients where you have they can see you more, um, they do better.
1: I got goosebumps. You know? like I, I've I've never, well, never asked you this, but I've never heard the story. That's a huge, huge shift as a twelve-year-old.
0: Well, it was a shift because what I recognised then was that um, if I had a measurement of life stress. I may not have called it stress as a 12-year-old, but I had, a, I had a, a bar that everything else was going to be measured against. I also had a, an so opportunity- The bar
1: being cancer and that bar being living.
0: Yeah, that, you know, when you're 12, and you don't know if you're going to make it to 13. Um, you don't sit there thinking, oh, I'm not going to make it to 13. What well, you sit there is going, what am I going to do if I don't see my parents or if I don't see my grandparents? You, know, you think of it differently. When you reflect on it, you realize that actually what you're doing is you're, on the, you're learning the meaning of life. So I learned the meaning of life from that point. Then at the age of about four to 13, I, I, I started following my brothers in running. So, you know, I worked out I wasn't the best runner in the family. There were six of us. Four of the others were way better. They were all national level. But I hadn't won a national championship. And I thought, I can't. And by the age of 15, I had won a national championship. So how did I go from being the least, the, 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 the worst runner in the family to suddenly the one that was winning the top vents? I had to work out physiologically what I needed to do what food suited me, what training suited me. And mentally, I was driven because, you know, I wasn't going to waste my life from the age of 12 on. So for me, I had those moments. At the age of 15, I was sitting on the stairs in – Taking a class off with your buddies in school, as you do in town, and suddenly this bus opened up, and our four dudes walk out. I think it's
1: we call that wagging in Australia.
0: Well, we, <laughs> were wag- that, we were you
1: wagging. M- you oh. made that sound so profound in <laughs> Ireland. Oh, we were taking some time out to recover and you know get some coping skills. You were wagging. I was you wagging. At school. I was yes.
0: wagging, and, but it was the best wag of my life because uh, out of the bus, the door slid open really quick, and four dudes rushed into the supermarket came out with bags of potatoes, Irish chips, potatoes, and coke and stuff. And my buddy goes, look, 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 Bonner, Age, Larry, Mo. and I was like, who, who are they? They were you too. Before they were massive back back in the early days. And uh, and so I started reading up on Bonner. And one of the things I discovered about him was that his mother passed away when she walked in the door after her father's funeral. And that lit a fire in me. That lit a fire in me. How can somebody, a young woman with a family, How can she
1: die? She died of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. How can she die? So she'd just been to her father's. So this is Bono's grandfather. He had passed away. He passed away. and Mother goes to the funeral.
0: His mother goes to the funeral and she comes in home and she drops of a subarachnoid hemorrhage and and passes away. And I was sitting there going, how can it happen? So that lit a fire in me for many, many years, um, and there's so, a
1: song written on that, I believe.
0: Yeah, uh, Bono's written many songs. In the last album, there was a song, second last album, a song called "Iris." Um, there's a song on, on the pop record called "Morpho." Um, you know, he, he constantly writes about his mother. I think it's been an absolute driving force for him. A teenage boy without a mother, you can picture it, and a father who he wasn't very well connected with until later in his adult years. But I I studied him, and so he was. I was looking at it going, what drives him? And I recognised that that. You know, and you see this with a lot of really successful people is that they have some chip on the shoulder. And he, and that was well, his. psychological
1: construct is drive. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. Layman's person, or the layman's person, the layperson's terminology is a chip on the shoulder. Children. Yeah.
0: So that's such an inquisition. And then you know, you watch movies as a teenager, and you see the man and the woman at the airport, and he has to leave and get on the plane. You know, the black and white ones, and they're all crying, and I don't want to go, and I don't want you to go. I used to just sit there and go. Well don't go, <laughs> yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I just, yeah, why are you going? So because for me, I thought, you've got the ingredient there, why, why are you going? So I got really interested in emotions. I'm really interested in the link between emotions and our physiology. And then when I was working as early on in my career as a clinical nurse, so many times, and I mean it so many times over the year, we get a message from emergency saying, have you got Mrs. Joe, Mrs. Bloggs in, your, in one of your patients? Yeah, I've got her husband here in emergency with heart symptoms. He's having a heart attack or something. And it happened so many times. And I just couldn't let it go that actually emotion was driving the physiology. And then eventually, when the time was right, it's exactly the topic I did my doctorate degree to say, how can we map out the physiology in that scenario? How is stress doing that? So it's something that has grown and grown and grown and grown. And now that I know what stress does, I'm absolutely passionate about how can we either mitigate it or prevent it. And and the analogy I often give at at scientific conferences is, you know, people will say there are some stresses you have to experience it to adapt it emotionally. And that is absolutely true. But I say if you're walking down the road in the rain, um, you're still going to walk down the road, but I can put an umbrella up and not get wet. And so for me, I want to put umbrellas up when we're in stress state so that we don't have adverse health conditions while we're doing
1: it. This is in your DNA, and I, I know how passionate you are about this, but I, understanding that backstory, uh, I, I get it. I really get it. Um, I also get you love You 2 How many U2 concerts have you seen live?
0: excess of 20. <laughs> well, it's pretty sad when I've lived in the other side of the world most of the time. You know, so it's well, not like, let's,
1: let's not dob you in, but let's say a, a, a very good friend and colleague of mine has been known to fly to Dublin just for a U2 concert. You know, those sort of people. Yeah, you know,
0: I know a friend who lived in America, practiced in America for a few years and uh, flew back to Wembley for to see them twice. And I was back at work at 3 p.m. on Monday. (laughs) Um, There's some things. And and I guess, you know, you asked me earlier about, you know, developing um, resilience, developing capacity. And and one of them is is actually engaging in your passions. One of them is actually developing interests that break the cycle. Because often we can be hamsters on the treadmill. and, And it's often our passions, our interests that actually can break that. And so for me, that's always been a um, yeah. I won't call it a stress coping. It's it's a passion. What I have recognized personally with stress is that I don't break the cycle by pondering a lot, I break the cycle by engaging in the things that give me pleasure. And I always say, I've said it to you before, every human being should have a minimum of five minutes deep pleasure every day. Now people immediately, their minds go to dirty places and do things. What I mean by that is actually engaging in something that truly gives you pleasure, whether it's in the garden, whether it's out walking in nature, uh, whether it's actually spending time with your loved one, whether it's um, spending time on your bike, whether it's, but truly, truly having those passions one of the problems or one of the things I see with a lot of people and particularly with small business owners is that the business be- can
1: often become the passion because... Well, self-identity becomes yeah. a role identity inextricably linked. Oh, I am the business owner, I am the leader, I am the entrepreneur.
0: But they may not, they, they, absolutely, but they may not even recognise that they may actually truly be passionate about their product. You know, I've got a business friend, one of my best friends has got a small business. Yeah. I, I daren't ask him about his products because for a four-hour bike ride, he will absolutely it's tell me time. every little thing because he he's truly loves them, you know. Um, and his business does well because he's so passionate. It's infectious. Why would you not buy it? Um, but but what I keep saying to him is because he goes home in the evening time and he goes straight back on to work again. And I'm like, no, no, uh, you're you coming running tonight or we're going and we're doing this or if for God's sake go and take your wife somewhere. And he started listening because he's he's now in his late forties and he's really starting to feel some of the effects of not investing himself. And he's done what a lot of people in their forties do. He didn't buy a motorbike, thank God. He bought a boat, but he's actually spent more quality time disengaged from work. You know, so that's creating capacity because that's actually switching on recovery mechanisms that prepare you for the next stressor. Mm.
1: Let's let's change gears. Uh, I chose the word carefully because you said before you got to break the cycle, I didn't want to use that as a segue. You'll understand where I'm going. <laughs> um, on May uh, so yeah, Sunday, May sixteenth, eleven a.m. I got a phone call from your wife, Nat, and it's a phone call you don't want to get from a colleague, a colleague's wife, that you had had a mountain bike accident. Um, and I said to Nat, how bad? She said, oh, it's pretty bad. Um, but she didn't relay how bad it was. Um, and I know this is a, something that we've all been living through, um, seeing your recovery, which has been phenomenal. But let's go back to that day first. Well, st- talk us through that moment. What happened that morning?
0: That was a good example of me not recovering and using my recovery time to feed my passions. Okay, Because... At that particular time in my life, we were in the, the, the in the midst of COVID. Um, you know, academic my academic career we all stopped and went. Ah, we may not have a university. As so, it's mark- good,
1: so a bit of context for listeners. Yeah. You're at Sydney University. Yeah, um, students are not flying in, especially the students Asian students can come to class. Um, we- Losing. Tens of millions of dollars. Oh,
0: we're, 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 we're talking about losing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars within a few months for, for a university. And, and your people, second
1: role is with me, heading the Research Institute, d- Then, which then we have stronger. a business, yeah,
0: which strives stronger. We have a business that suddenly our income suddenly almost stops. Um, from a research perspective, we have to stop all our clinical trials. Um, and then I was also, you know, one of the things I do in my spare time part of my academic work is I, I do a lot of work um, on health policy and uh, advice to government. Um, and and I got involved in um, how are we going to suddenly have enough intensive care nurses in the country to deal with what we expected. So so I suddenly got involved in a strategy to um, increase capacity in intensive care. So there was no free time. I was working until 10 at night getting up, trying to get some exercise in. Well, I was getting exercising because so I always prioritized it. Um, and in this case, that exercise was actually probably not – the amount I was doing was not right because I was using it as a coping strategy. Went out on a Sunday morning ride, um, was a little bit rushed, and uh, just misjudged a, 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 a jump, two-and-a-half-meter drop jump, um, something I would do with my eyes shut normally. Misjudged it, um, nosedived landed on rocks and uh, broke 17 bones in the upper chest plus a whole lot of internal injuries. For me, it was that moment when everything just stopped and you're lying on the ground. And it brought me back to being a 12-year-old again. It was like, oh God, here we go. Now, the really, I'm not sure if I told you, but uh, I have a PhD student, a supervisor, is about to put in her thesis and we've been studying the impact of chest injuries. And what I knew in the back of my head was, this is not good. It's not good. It can so it's happen- a
1: two and a half metre drop, and you've provided some footage, mm-hmm. some photos, which we'll put on the video cast on this. Um, broken vertebrae, busted ribs, lung. It's it's a full on impact injury.
0: It was a big injury. Uh, eight or nine vertebrae, seven ribs, flail chest, um, right lung full of blood, punctured lung, um, cardiac contusions, a whole load of internal injuries. Any one of them alone be serious put them all together and you can have up to you know somewhere about 25 30 percent up to mortality rate with that kind of level of injury so it's not a small injury but the funny thing is andrew very very quickly very quickly i just stopped and i went okay all right so we have to move now i have to move from thinking about all these responsibilities all these worries and everything and move into a a a, a, a mindset that's completely different
1: so, so just because we, we haven't really unpacked this. And if you don't feel comfortable, you, we can t- just do the, the detour. But is this, you're lying on a rock. Is this what's going through your head? Well, the, the pain the was so
0: excruciating and I was in and out of it a little bit. Plus I'd hit my head on when I came down. So if you can picture coming down, nose diving, and then getting fired back up in the air, landing on your back. Fortunately, I did have a, a chest plate. Um, a protector on but even if I hadn't I probably may not be talking to you to be very honest Um, but I still knew I had serious injuries so my initial response was to move into a problem focused I'm lying on the ground my mate who's with me is a he's a um, runs a business he's a a landscape gardener you know he wouldn't know the first thing about medicine Um, so I needed to get him instructing on how to position me I was kind of in and out I was in horrific pain I was sort of in and out of things. I knew I banged ahead. head. I knew that, that you can be quite good for a short period and then you can deteriorate. So I'm trying to give him instructions, make sure we got help. And um, very, very fortunately, within about two minutes, a ear, nose and throat specialist, medical practitioner turned up. And, uh, and on a mountain bike? On a mountain bike. And um, fortunately... Was looking after you that day. And, and, right? for, and at that point then I was able to let go a bit and I said to him, look, I think, you know, my right lung's filling. I've got a freak show, I've got hemothorax, pneumothorax, you know, uh, and we, we, I need to be positioned. Everyone's afraid to move you because of your neck and your head. I was like, I, I have got to get off my back here. I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to breathe like this. My lungs will be full of blood. And I knew where I was, it would be a good half hour, if not 40 minutes before you'd see an ambulance.
1: So, now, my limited understanding of a pneumothorax you can literally choke on blood right so if you are lying there your your lungs are filling up with blood you stop breathing
0: well the the yes yes yeah I mean a hemothorax is when you get blood into the wrong space into the lung and a pneumothorax is when you get air in the wrong cavity so the air is not in the lung it's around it so it's it's making the lung go from being a big balloon to being a golf ball and I knew my right lung because I could feel it and I could feel I could barely breathe. So I knew, I knew that lung was, was in trouble. I also, I knew I could move my toes. So I was like, right, well, we've got to make sure. You, very, very often in emergency scenarios, it's actually the, what you do after the accident that can result in being paralyzed as opposed to the accident, which is why people are so careful about moving. So, so I'm immediately in problem thinking mode about, you know, I need to be rescued. I need to be put in a position that won't hurt my spine, but will allow me to breathe. Um, and somebody needs to tell my wife because I promised her I wouldn't do anything dangerous um, during this time. Because going into hospital was not a desirable um, during the middle of COVID. So it was it was one scenario where I recognised I was very quickly able to go into problem solving mode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then, but what I was also thinking was, well, I've got to get out of pain. You got to. But as soon as as soon as as soon as we had the right paramedics around me, um, you know, and there was a team of about 20 who extracted me out of there, stabilized me, um, shot me off with morphine, ketamine, which is put, you start tripping. So there were some points where I was watching them treat me, which I haven't resolved yet. And um, there was other points in the ambulance where the ambulance was doing somersaults. And, and so, you know, you then move into a whole world, a different world, which is really interesting because you actually let go. Um, For a
1: guy who spent thirty years in hospitals, multiple degrees, eighty peer-reviewed journals, you were watching this. What's so? I, I have still you, haven't
0: resolved that. It's. Um, Do you think you know, it was
1: a like a going to another dimension?
0: I, I have no idea, and, and I try not to think too much about it. I, I you know, you could. But I certainly, you know, whether it's not I saw photographs and they've implanted a memory and that's what I see, I'm not sure. But I do remember them. I, I specifically remember them doing starting and going airway, hey, breathing. So, and, and this is what we're trained to do. And I remember being so impressed with the paramed- lead paramedic. You know, I just thought he was just brilliant. You know, he was just so systematic.
1: I'm just trying to get my head around this. Mm. So I'm just trying to get my head around this, that you're there, you just had a, a horrific accident and you're running dual ports. So one is you're in pain, you're getting treated. The second one is you're looking at this and uh, making an analysis on how well they're treating you.
0: Well, I was trying to make sure they didn't make me worse. or But, you know, these guys are so well-trained. They're, you know, they're just professionals. I remember being in emergency for all of two minutes because I was pretty much out of it. I remember being in the CT scanner and hallucinating, you know. And some people get that in a CT scanner, anyway. It's like a big dome and it's circling. Um, and then the next thing I remember being looking around, waking up my eyes, and I'm in the intensive care unit. The intensive care unit where for the last twenty years, twenty-two years, I have done research, I have worked, I have. Been in charge of the critical care program for most of the nurses in there. So these are I've your worked students. with the doctors. I have students, and and then I recognise, okay, now now put your money where your mouth is. You know, you've educated, or been involved in educating these people. I had certified a lot of these people. Uh, it's right now now see how good they are. And uh, were, were you
1: calm about that, or were you going? Gosh, I hope that they didn't fudge their results. Was there an anxiety, or were you were you at peace knowing that you're in a safe place and you could let go?
0: I was completely at peace at that point. At that point, then, I I thought, right, now I have to think of recovery. From this moment on, now it's all about recovery. Um, And from that moment on, I thought, right, what are all the different things I can do from this point on? um, Can you give me the
1: time? Is this on day one or is this a few days? This is
0: on day one. And the very first thing I thought I'll do, well, I can't move. I can't move an inch in my body right now. Um, because of the equipment that was on me, um, the, the, the medications going in, the the, the franticism that's going around, because that level of chest injury has a very high mortality rate. Um, so I knew that. Um, but I thought, well, I've got to trust these people because I can't lift my hand up to do it myself. So so I immediately got a peace with it. I got a piece with the fact that I did this to myself, which is really important because if somebody else had hit me with a car riding to the trail, very, you, you, you would have a complete different perspective You'd be on angry. this, Yeah, but I did this. So I now understand why base jumpers accept the risk because you 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 you're at peace with it. Um, and so I just got at peace with it. And one at, at the time, the only person allowed to see me was my wife. So that was the guilt factor of I was putting now her into a further stress state, as if she didn't have enough stress with her work and family and kids. So that was the only bit I wasn't at peace with. Everything else I was at peace with from my perspective. It was now about, okay, I need to tick every probability I get out of here. Mm. And the first thing to do, the only thing in control right now is think. I can change the narrative in my head. This is not so bad because guess what? I don't have to go to work tomorrow.
1: So the the first part, we'll come to it in a moment. (laughs) Don't worry, that wasn't last time. Um, But all the training you've had, all the research you've done, do you think they just kicked in automatically or... Is it the twelve-year-old who got through cancer, and his mate Liam passed away? What was it? All of it.
0: It was all of it. It's the understanding what was going on around me, allowed me to suddenly become go from being a seeker to a blunter. I was a seeker on on the ground, on the rocks. I wanted to know what's going on, I wanted to know what they're doing, et cetera. As soon as I developed confidence that the system had kicked in, a system I love, I really believe in, um, we have the most amazing health system. Um, And I just thought, all right, now I need to let the system look after me. So I was able to let go of being a seeker and I became a blunter. And you know, to this day, Andrew, I've not read my medical notes. I have access to everything, I've not read them. Mm. Um, I've read- Knowing you
1: that, uh, it it surprises me, but it doesn't. the way you're saying it's a blunter that you you let go and let other people focus on it and you focus on mindset and levers and i want to really dig into those in a moment as well so obviously you decided that part of your healing process was not to get too much information
0: not not to because you know they, and i don't mind sharing it there were complications you know i, I got a, a, a really nasty infection through one of the cannulas in my arm that infection traveled around my body i'm suddenly septic um you add that in don't mortality probability goes up and I knew that they were quite aggressively treating that. I knew they were very worried. I knew just by what was going on around me that this was getting more serious. But I thought I can't engage. I can't engage in that. I don't need to know what bacteria it is. I don't need to know. I just need to know that they're. they're I need to just see that they're doing they're doing what they can do. And and so I wasn't a seeker of information. And so they come in the ward round and you can picture you come in the ward round and, and everyone around the bed knows you. And um, and they're on eggshells a little bit too because they
1: don't want to mess it up with well, the college. Knowing you, you've done yeah. some of the research that they're now putting into practice in ICU. <laughs> well, let's be really clear about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they're like, you know, look, you know, they, and they start off, you know, there's this and there's this and there's this and we could do this and we're not sure about that. And eventually I had to say, look, put my hands up and say, guys, look, I'm the patient. Look, look, I'm, I'm happy for you to make the decisions here. yeah, you because know, there was – should we send you to surgery now or should we start to opening your chest here on the unit? So the should role we you is know all this kind of stuff? You
1: the lead.
0: They, and my wife even says it, that in some ways they were almost relying on wanting me to make all the decisions for them. And she recognized that really early. And it was like you weren't in a position to know where you were, because I was in and out of it. She was going, you know, she she just wanted them to make the decisions too. And as soon as I recognized that, then I just said to them, guys, look, just just do what you think needs to be done here. Because, you know, I, mean, I was in the middle of a conversation and then I'm out then of it again. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't in a position, but they were so respectful. So I just had to let go. I had to stop being a seeker, which I am most things in my life. And I had to become a blunter. And I've been a blunter the whole way to the end. What I have done is look at all the controllables. So the controllables for me in hospital, I had loads of them, yeah, and I'll let them look after the uncontrollables.
1: Just to give the full story, how long were you in ICU for?
0: So in ICU for just over two weeks, and I, had, uh, I was well enough to have the surgeries I really needed at 10 days to 11 days. Okay, so you're in yeah.
1: surgery for over two weeks. You have numerous operations and then you kick into gear.
0: Then I kick into gear, one of the, the great things was once I'd had the surgery and I knew there was nothing more they could do for me, I took myself home two days after being out of ICU. So, and the reason for that was I recognized the environment was not a healing environment. I recognized that there was nothing they were doing for me now that I couldn't do at home with a little bit of help. And so getting myself out of that environment was a controllable because lying in a hospital bed and waiting, because waiting is the killer in these scenarios, just waiting, waiting. Whereas get home and now I can start to immerse myself back into a recovery.
1: Well, you fast track recovery, so much so that you saw one of the specialists, I think three months after the accident and he if it thought he was having an operation. That that
0: was that was actually very funny because we were doing the three-month follow-up and um and, and that follow-up's really critical because you know the, the the level of post-traumatic stress after being in intensive care is very high. And I've researched this, I'm doing a massive study on this at the moment. So I'm well aware that up to 40% of patients post-intensive care can end up with significant psychological trauma um uh, particularly down the road three, six months. So so they're doing this follow-up clinic and uh, we're going through. And psychologically, I've been really, really good. I've been waiting for the crash. It's just not happened. Um, And what I think I've recognized was that because I came to peace with it very early, moved into a sort of problem focused, I also have pushed every lever. You know, three weeks after being home, I'm on the indoor bike. I mean, my son's propped me up against the wall on one side and a shelf on the other side, and I'm spinning the legs over. I, I could I couldn't even lift a cop up, but I could do that. Oh, because I know this
1: because I rang you one day to check and I just heard this.
0: And I, I shouldn't said, have been honest, said, but on it. I
1: said, you want a bike? You went, yeah. yes.
0: But that was psychological. For me, that was like, all right, I'm not just going to sit on the lounge, you know, take enough painkillers and do it. Probably shouldn't have been doing it. But at the three-month assessment, um, um, he said to me, he said, so let talk to me now about today. What would you do this morning? I said, well, I did a two-and-a-half-hour mountain bike. I said, I did a two-and-a-half-hour uh, bike ride this morning. And he just stopped, stopped there. just stopped there. You did what? And I said, yeah, I did about two and a half hours on the bike this morning. I said I started, started about four weeks ago. I could do five minutes, then six, then eight. And, you know, now I'm up to two and a half hours and he's like on the kicker, you know, the indoor bike. I say, no, 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 no. On the mountain bike. Yeah. Yeah. But the mountain bike was on the kicker. I said, no, 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 no. The mountain bike was on the trail. He's going physically, you should not be able to be on the trail. And so what I recognised was that actually my conditioning before the accident had made me quite atypical and the levers I'd pulled since had made sure that I was able to get to that
1: point. So let's go through the levers because in the book that we co-wrote, Matchfit, we Mm. talk about at least six levers, so move, fuel, think, recharge, connect and play. But you pulled every lever possible.
0: Yeah, first one was think. The first one was to develop that mindset that um, I'm going to recover from this, the same mindset that has a 12-year-old. the, the the next one was move and actually, um, despite my worst days in ICU, um, I really, really pushed the physios and the registered nurses to get me out of bed as much as they could. Some days blood pressure wasn't good enough or you weren't well enough, but any day I could. And there was one particular day they were walking me around to the bathroom. Um, yeah, you, you had tubes in every orifice at one point, and as soon as I could get them out, I wanted to prove to them if I could get to the bathroom, they could take the tubes out of out of the bladder. Um, and so the physio and the registers took me around, and I just remember the ward round. You know, you got the entourage around the computer, and they just stopped, and everyone just stared like that. Walking around, and what I recognized afterwards they told me was that they were a disbelief I was even out of bed, so my mindset was i 've got to move i 've got to move um, nutrition wise from a fuel perspective, I recognized and knew that when you 're acutely ill, you actually start using up your own protein stores that 's one of the problems about being critically ill. Um, and so you really, really got to take high-quality foods, the fats and proteins in there. It's not all about just carbs. So I I didn't want to eat, but I made myself eat because I knew I had to keep fueling that the more I cannibalized myself, the worse the recovery was going to be. Um, so the think, the move, the fuel, they were the big ones I could control. When I got home, I, you know, I had that moment where I recognized that Being around your loved ones is the most precious thing you can do when you're going through any recovery or going through stress. And so I really, really, you know, when you're really, really busy and you're floating in and out and your ship's past the night at home and stuff, I actually really loved just being there, observing, chatting. I couldn't do a lot. You know, for a couple of weeks, you're just propped up in bed, you're not sleeping much, you're not doing much. But I, I just loved being there. And that whole sense of family, that whole... It sounds terrible to say reconnecting with everybody, but connecting on a higher level and appreciating just how much. And I had never appreciated how much my wife did at home. You know, I always thought we're quite an equitable couple, and of course I pull my weight. But then you just realize just how brilliant your family are. And so and that's not changed. I I, I now have changed a lot of my behaviors after that. Um, but just that connection was so important. And then play, you know, one of the th- best things for me at that time was was Netflix. I don't watch television much, but I made sure I could do that. Um, I would go out and prop myself up and try and play the PlayStation with my younger son. Um, You know, I looked at opportunities. I'd read books, play chess, um, do the things I could do that I wouldn't normally do. And that was just, it was just a re-engagement in the importance of play. Mm. Uh, so that play and connect was so, so important, but that physicality of moving, as I say, from, from day one, if I could move a little finger, I would. Whereas it's very easy to give in and say, all right, you know, you're in so much pain, don't move. But actually the cure is moving.
1: Hi, we hope you have been enjoying this podcast so far. Don't forget that we have plenty more podcasts and content just like this on NAB Business Fit. Go to www.nab.com.au forward slash for more content to support your physical and psychological wellbeing and to help you take care of business. So you're treating someone or someone's in a hospital and you see that mindset, which is almost defeatist from the start. Oh, this is terrible. It happened to me. How do you change that? From what you're saying, if you don't get that mindset, it's critical. Now, let's draw a parallel. You're running a business or leading a team. And there's a major catastrophe happens. At the moment, it's COVID, a black swan event, but it can be a bushfire, it can be drought, it can be flood, it can be economic hardship, it can be threat from competition. That mindset's so important. So uh, how do you jolt that?
0: I think you, you jolt that by recognising what your coping needs are to start with. For me, I had enough medical knowledge to know what was going on. So I didn't need more questions about the, the medical side. Because I had enough knowledge. But if, I, if, if you were in that scenario and you didn't have that knowledge, then if you're a seeker, get, get that information. Satisfy your information needs. Yeah? Um, so whatever the scenario is, you know, the, the, the bottom line is you've got to make an assessment of the situation. We do this subconsciously. We assess, then we plan, then we do something. Um, you don't want to go straight to doing something. So recognize you know, what are your information needs. Are you a Seeker or are you a Blunter? recognize that you will go through different coping strategies. So you might be quite highly emotional. Oh, no, 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 this up, you know, and then you move into solution or you might start solutions and then recognize that you need to deal with the emotions Did you afterwards. have some bad
1: days or bad periods, days rolling into each other or did you catch yourself and move on quick?
0: You, you know what, people are going to think I made this up. I did not have one down moment and I keep waiting for it to come out. It's just over four months and it's not coming. And maybe it'll come later. Um, because I was at peace with it, because immediately, um, I remember what I said about perception of stress. Your perception is always your own perception against the worst you've had before. I've had that life and death moment before. And in the same way as you, know, you asked me earlier, could you prepare, prepare for COVID? We're certainly prepared for the next one. If it happens again in three, four, five, ten 10 years time. And if we're not prepared, it's our fault because we've lived through this one. Yeah, so I had that 35 odd years ago. So because I had it then, I was able to probably move quicker through it this time.
1: Mm. And there's a, a lever that you didn't discuss, which I know is a big one to you, it's a big one to us, um, nature and getting out and sunshine and grass. And, and sometimes people see us or we talk to our, you know, we work behind the scenes with some top 20 uh, ASX company CEOs, we don't advertise who they are, but you know, they run big companies, tens of thousands of people, and they come into a coaching session. We say, okay, once or twice a week, you've got to go and walk around on the earth with shoes off. And they think we're crazy.
0: They do, and what they don't realise is that when you when you, your human body is always supposed to be in in touch with nature, whether it's greenery around us or touching it. But physiologically, and I did do this one when I was able, I did walk around on the lawn barefoot a lot. Because we actually know that when the human body is earthed, touching the ground without anything artificial in between, we do know physiologically that we produce a lot less free radicals, a lot of, less, a lot of the damage of inflammation is a lot less. We also know some studies, there are only small studies that are evolving, have shown too that when people do what we call grounding in, in, our, in our lab, um, when they do grounding, they're less prone to depression symptoms, et cetera. So so I did do nature from the perspective of seeing nature. And actually as quick as I could, I got back out on the trails, whether it was hobbling or walking or eventually when I could ride the bike and, and get back in touch with nature. You know, in stress, I think one of the, you asked me earlier about some of the learning. I think one of the biggest things I've learned about stress is that sometimes the cure to stress is actually a small dose of the stress again. And so, from Stress
1: inoculation.
0: Stress inoculation, um, you know, it's a principle of homeopathic medicine, you know, let like cure alike. Um, and stress is a bit like that, you know, you, you you're revisiting things and engaging and synthesizing, and then that helps you to develop uh, resilience and resilience to the next time you're exposed we to it. We
1: don't, your family and your colleagues and close friends don't want you jumping off three-metre rocks again. So that's not what you're talking about. It's, no, just, it's bringing no, no, no. other stressors into your life. It's not running away from them.
0: Yeah, no, it would be selfish of me to start flying off two and three meter rocks again. That would be selfish. Um, apart from the risk to me, it just yeah, wouldn't be fair on my family. So no, I'll keep the wheels on the ground. But, but actually avoiding, avoiding the things you're passionate about because it could cause a stress. For me, I actually engage with that stress. And the very first ride I did, my wife came with me. You know, and so that was that was actually addressing a couple of things. One, it was actually spending time with her. Secondly, it was going back on the trail and overcoming the, the fear of it happening again. But it was also just get back in love nature and recognize that it doesn't have to be a stress. What we gotta remember with stress is that there are the positive stresses. It's when those positive stresses and you don't you exceed your capacity, they become a distress. And and so I don't want to trivialize that. If you're in distress. If you've got, if you're not sleeping, and you have this constant perception of stress, and you have this perception that this stress is doing you harm, you know, that's not the time to add another stress. That's the time to try and break the stress cycle. But in our normal life, exposing yourself to challenges, exposing yourself to unusual situations, you know, whether it's a physical challenge or an emotional challenge, that is how we adapt. And that's how we create capacity to deal with the next stress.
1: So being diagnosed with cancer as a 12-year-old and then seeing Bono and Larry and Edge get off a bus in Dublin eating potato crisps and then studying, uh, that's all prepared you for moments. And you look back, the 12-year-old example especially, our biggest learning, our biggest growth in life comes from the challenging times. Mm. What has this taught you, or, or is it too early to reflect on that? So what, what did the accident teach you?
0: See, people are asking me that a lot. I, I was at a barbecue with my neighbours recently, uh, you know, as soon as we were allowed to. And it was the first question I was asked is, you know, has this changed your perception? And and I, I I looked her in the eye and I said, you might think I'm making this up, but it hasn't because I have had this pres been through this before and I've had this view of the world what it did do for me though is it stopped a horrible trajectory I was on and I you know and what I say to people now is don't be Tom don't wait until you crash and burn when you're in the midst of of stresses you know I was in the midst of a lot of stresses at that time Um, the mountain bike accident was the one I needed to have because it probably saved me from having a cardiac, uh, you know, a cardiac event or a heart attack or some, some other stress manifestation. So, you know, when I say don't be Tom, as in don't keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And in some ways, look at how am I coping? So as I said to you earlier, my way of coping was to fill every minute with exercise, which is like my drug. What I should have been doing was filling one and two minutes with exercise, and the other one I should have been focusing more on recovery. I should have been practicing what I preach. Um, and so I think we've written about that. We have written about that, and, but you know we're all human, and, and sometimes we don't all drink our own medicine. And what it did bring back to me was a, a total appreciation for the people around me, the amazing people around me. So that we need those wake-up calls sometimes, but also a real appreciation for invest more and more and more in recovery so that you actually, the stressors don't overcome you. Because what happened to me was the stressors overcame me. And of course, you think you're doing cope and fine. I mean, I thought I was doing fine. I'm managing it. But when I reflect on it, There wasn't a down moment in the day. And I imagine a lot of small business leaders and um, listening to this are in the same way, where from six in the morning until 10 at night, every minute is filled. Every minute is filled. Well, my advice for you is don't be Tom. Don't have every minute so full that you're waiting for the crash, whatever that crash is,
1: to then stop you. It's counterintuitive when you are under the pump. And when you are stressed, you think, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll get to this week, I'll get to next week, I'll get the contract across the line, I'll just wait until this economic, you know, this quarter closes down. You've sometimes got to grab yourself, have that jolt, you know, step back from it and put in some recovery. But like, we get it. I've been there, you've been mm-hmm. there. When you get busy, you are the hamster on the treadmill. It's stepping back yeah. before you have the crash, uh, literal or metaphorical. Do you think we'll look back in COVID in a few years' time and have some similar learnings? What are your thoughts on that? Do you think COVID is something that, and again, uh, being very sympathetic because some people listening to this through absolutely no fault of their own, their businesses have just stopped. Uh, If you're in a place where there's no traffic, like a lot of CBD areas, and you have food service or a supply business, it's really tough, really challenging. So I don't want to trivialise this. In time, when we look back... What what are some of the lessons you think we'll take out of this?
0: Look, I, I think people will take different things depending on how much, how they're impacted. I mean, uh, COVID has, some businesses have thrived in COVID and other businesses have disappeared. And in the middle, it's probably a large majority are surviving. Um, I, I would never trivialise it and say, it was the thing we needed to happen. What I would say is that, something was going to happen, and it happened to be COVID. Um, I would say that the the CDC, the Centre of Diseases, have said that this is probably one of many that we're going to experience as a society. So I think the big learning we can take from it is we need to pre- be prepared for the next one. We need to think ahead. From a personal perspective, I think we need to make sure that um, you know, we call it being match fit, I, I we need to be in charge of our own agency our own body our own mind we need to invest in it you know if I look at some of the clients that we work with, the ones who seem to be coping the best as individuals they're the people who invested in themselves well before covid they're not the ones that are trying to turn around twenty years of of uh, behavioral um or uh, you know self care disengagement they're the ones They're the ones who you and I have known for years, who every year they invest in lowering the heart rate because when you do that you create more capacity to deal with stress they they do that through exercise they invest in nutrition they're not necessarily angels with food but they have principles underlying what the right nutrition they've invested in working out what's the right nutrition for them
1: they've They've invested in understanding their purpose purpose. and flexible mindset and stretching it's a bit like it's like money in the bank it's compound interest and when you do that work early you just get a a return year after year after. yeah
0: yeah look it it, does an athlete, Greg Bennett, many listeners may know, very awesome triathlete, Olympic level triathlete, retired now in his 40s. But I often listen to podcasts with him and he and his wife, Laura Bennett, both professional triathletes, they probably made the most money of any triathlete I know. But what they did was they invested 20% of every dollar they earned, they invested it back in themselves, massage, chiropractor, having good flights to the races, good hotels, good nutrition, etc. And they both had careers that went 25 years at the top level of the sport because they kept investing in themselves. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing we should learn from COVID is to invest part of your business earnings or whatever, invested in you because you're at the heart of that business and you're the one who's going to have to make the decisions, cope, when the next stressor comes, and there will be more stressors, you know, this is probably not isolated.
1: We were, you and I were working with Marin Aldridge and and Thomas the Wizard was filming us this time last week. We are working with leaders in defence, the pointy end of defence in Navy, and we were speaking about Mm. that, that, you know, you spend all this money on your house, you renovate a house, and Mm. new people come around and go, oh, Tom, beautiful house, nice new bathroom, wow, love the open kitchen. Jeez, look at those terracotta pavers. We invest all this money our car and a dashboard diagnostic comes on we take it to the mechanic yeah. why i love my car mate what have you been doing about your creaky ankles or the tight limbs or the weight you've been carrying for 20 years i'll get to that
0: yeah i think we we tend to we tend to always think that these things are fixable or we can you will know, we'll get to it or we'll um you know uh, when i retire i'll address all these things you know, Trust me, somebody who studied health, somebody who works with people my whole life in the health system, um, what you invest earlier in your life reaps 20 times later in your life. Now, exercise is a good example of that. You get a lot of people who are very healthy, very fit, do a lot of sport when they're younger, and then they get busy in life with their business, with their family, and they have a real dip in fitness in their mid-years, and then they take it up later. There is always a benefit when you take it up but the benefit when you take it up is about half the benefit if you kept mm-hmm. it going in the first place so yeah you know, the message is there's always time to to increase um uh, you know your well-being and your fitness but if you'd be better off running at 80% for 20 years than for 10 of them and then
1: 100% for the next 10. Well, we'll have another conversation another day about longevity because you know Mm. my thoughts that um, I want to get way past 100 and often into 120s, 130s. Um, Whether that's possible or not, we're not sure, but science is definitely showing that we are starting to reverse ageing.
0: Yeah, look, science in that space is moving very, very, very quick. I think one of the big learnings in there is that if you look at what science is studying, and and the products or molecules that they're studying, and its effect on on the sort of how we age and how our cells cycle, etc. They're all they're all molecules we're exposed to our whole life you know they're not things that are foreign to the human body you know they're not synthetic drugs they're molecules that we should be exposed to on a regular basis some of them we should be generating naturally through activity through through healthy yeah for instance um you know when we get pleasure from play we get a whole lot of release of molecules in the body they're the same molecules that they're testing in the lab that are shown in the animals to triple their lifespan you know, so so when you actually look at that whole longevity area, um, it is actually now us recognising which are the molecules, can we manipulate them, but actually we can and we can do it. Well, you did with all those levers. Yeah, but but they, those levers worked because I've been doing them before as well. You know, if your pre-accident state is quite good and you've got a good cardiovascular system that can deal with the stresses um, and you've had exposure before, then you can pull them all again, the first time you pull those levers is when you probably need help. That's probably when you need to say, all right, who's the best person to help me here? And that is one of the coping strategies about recruiting help and recruiting the right help. Uh, You know, you you and I both have a, a, a dislike for the word hack for people who claim to have expertise because they've read it on the internet and then they call themselves hacks. Recruit or the you spend right help.
1: Fifty years trashing your body, and then have a hack suddenly overnight. So don't get me started on hacks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But on, on the that, that theme of help and support, that's why we've put together that business feed so small business owners and their team members can actually look at some of the physical, psychological, and financial support around getting through this. You've been in small business now for more than fifteen years. What would you give if there were a couple of pieces of advice you could give small business owners that you've learned, combining your your tertiary educations, your hands-on experience, the accidents, getting through cancer, your lifelong lab in resilience, what's a couple of things you would give people to do now?
0: So I think the the first one is to, I've said it multiple times, is to treat yourself as you're the core of the small business, so invest in yourself. So that's the first one, and that means invest in um, your, your well-being, You know, but also invest in the things that give you pleasure and invest in ensuring that you um, regularly, you know, you take your car for checkups, you know, in for a service. You know, I mean, there's probably nothing wrong with that car. Do the same with your body, you know, continuously. And the second one is to get to know, get to know your thinking. So we talked about coping there. Hopefully, some of the listeners here now are thinking, "Oh, yeah, no, that's that's me, and that's my partner, and that's Joe Blot. and that would explain why you know we don't get on in these particular scenarios." So invest in getting to know yourself and. You can do that by getting feedback, but you actually do it better by going to people who can help you to unpack that.
1: And to learn on that, just a quick shout out as well on the NAB Business Fit side. You've written a great article on that. So for people who are listening or watching this, go to the NAB Business Fit side and look under the mental health and resilience part. And you've got an article on that as well, which really goes through those coping strategies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just recognize where you're at, recognize the people around you and then be conscious of it. And the third thing is to really recognize that where you've been is probably not where you're going to be in the future. I mean, for some businesses, perhaps it is, but as an individual, you know, how you viewed the world, how you viewed the threats that there are to us, and then how you're going to respond to them in the future should be different. So if there's, you know, if if you take nothing else from this podcast is, you know, if you're going to do the same thing, you hear me say it all the time, do the same thing, keep doing it. What do you expect? Something different? If you want something different, if this comes around again, or you, you want to be different in the future, you've got to do something in the middle. And so, you know, really, really work on what have I learned, write it down, reflect on it, um, You know, go to your best buddy that you trust, go to your partner or go to another business leader or go to a business coach and, and look at how can I take that forward in a different way.
1: I think those two strategies are really important. One is to write down because then you become your internal coach yeah. because we can have all this crazy dialogue. But when you write it down, you see it in black and white or blue and white, whatever colour the pen is, you can make meaning out of it. And sometimes the meaning is like my crazy monkey brain. I do this when I journal, especially in when it's stressful, like distressful yeah. times and you, you blow it all up. And then you write it down and go, actually, it's not that bad. I've been here before. I've got resources. I've got friends. There's connections. I can get through this. the other thing is asking other people and you know we did this recently to to reflect on some of the things we've done in COVID to get through because some companies have been asking us it's really hard to answer that yourself whereas when you ask your team members or suppliers what do you think I've done I think that's a really useful strategy because we get caught up in our head and maybe we don't see what we've done both good and bad I think it's it's you you need a balance between cheerleaders and challenges when you're getting that feedback
0: yeah I really agree And and I think you know One of the things that I've noticed um, with many business leaders, including yourself, is be authentic. You know, if you're authentic about things and and know what you're chasing, you know, um, if you're chasing money, um, because that gives you something else and enables quality of your life and stuff like that, then, then be authentic about that. If you're chasing like my other friend with a business who's just really passionate about the product and the money comes later, um, but just be authentic and, um, and just recognize why you're doing these things and be authentic about it. Um, what I have noticed with business leaders um, and a lot of small business leaders is that the ones who are really, really authentic They're quite honest, they're open, they own the good, the not so good, um, and perhaps the ugly. And they own it, and they're authentic about it. They're the ones I just see continually growing, growing, growing. And then they're the ones I, most of them are the ones I see thriving at the moment.
1: Mm. Um two questions I'd like to ask all of our guests on this podcast. Now, the first one: is there a poem, a quote, maybe a U2 song that you draw inspiration from, a story? Is, is there one thing or is it just a whole balance of experiences?
0: There's a lyric, it's in a U2 song from The Octon Baby. How album. Did I know it would be U2. And it's one, it's one I I frequently write down, and it's one. I remember working in a cardiac cat lab, and I was only here in Australia about two weeks when you should be making an impression. And I wrote it across the whiteboard in between the cases. And a professor of cardiology came up behind me and just looked at it, looked at me, and then walked away and smiled. And actually, he's become one of my, my best friends since. And it's we're taking steps that make us feel dizzy, but then we get to like the way it feels. And I think that's life. I think that is life, um, that we are continuously taking steps into the unknown, we're continuously challenging ourselves and they do make us feel dizzy at times and some of them are quite stressful experiences, but you do get to like the way it feels and, and that's my motto in
1: life. Like that. Is there a question you would like me to have asked you or is there a question you'd like to ask me in wrapping up?
0: I guess I'm interested in, in your Big learning through this crisis because you've had a business to manage, you've had people dependent on you. Um, I've seen you being incredibly authentic. I mean, one of the first things I saw you do was reaching out to people you knew in industry and making sure they were okay. Um, what? I mean, I was just so impressed with that. What? What was your thinking and what's your big learning?
1: Um, yeah, you put me on the spot, on that one. This is meant to put you on the spot. Um, look, the reason I reached out to people and I said it, it wasn't a rehearsed line. It was just, are you okay? Yeah. yeah. You know, and what can we do to support? Um, I'm not trying to sell you anything, but you've been a great supporter. I, I just rang multiple people who've booked me for keynotes, who've booked our business and previous businesses, um, just to say, look, I really appreciate you've supported me. How can we support you now? And it was it was overwhelming just some of the conversations mm-hmm. and, and that has built relationships. It's made me realise relationships were actually a lot stronger than they were um, and it wasn't done from a monetary point. And in fact, a lot of those people we haven't done any work, we've done some support with in the last six months. But it's it's really cemented that we have got great people around us. So I think the theme on that is you're not an island. I reckon the learning I've had, especially in the last five, seven years with my ev- evolution, Uh, in my 40s, is don't do it solo. I think when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're like, yeah, I'm Superman, I'll go through this, and if people get in the way, stuff them, you know, get another tribe. Um, Still moving forward, still having momentum, but being more considerate. So pausing before making decisions. And that doesn't mean being indecisive. It just means not jumping into a decision emotionally, sitting back reflecting. So what I've taken out of this, Tom, is we've got a great community Mm. of people around us and, and our team. Um with you, Thomas, uh, Erin, Angela, Dr. Harry, our providers like Teresa, Rob, Merrin, just really asking out to how do you think we do this? So I think that's been the big learning. And the collective power of a group is so much more powerful than I, I, I.
0: Yeah, and and you know, we've talked about this in other forums, but you don't you don't have to have all the answers. You just need to be asking the right questions and then the solutions will come. And I think um, you know, reaching out and I, I think one last thing that, that I would really like to emphasize is that, you know, stress that becomes distress is, it can be a tipping point for people in their lives, you know, and it can tip into a positive stress. So, you know, we've talked about my experience and it sounds very stereotypical, wow, positive, 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 but, but actually that could have tipped the other way. I could have absolutely broken and and that scenario just like covid just like other stresses can actually break people and just recognize that I'm now in distress state I'm now not sleeping well I'm I'm hyper or I'm or I'm feeling really really blue in such a way that this is actually dangerous and I could make bad decisions and and recognize that you know and and act on it And do reach out, do reach out, whether it's to loved ones or professionals, and don't be afraid to reach out. Don't wait until you're at the complete broken point. The breaking point for me was musculoskeletal injuries that I was able to recover from, but psychologically I could have broken in a different way. So um, we need to just be conscious and, as I say, be in charge of your own agency, but recognize when things are beyond your capacity and, and don't be afraid to ask for help because there's loads of people who will support you. You'd be shocked how people come out of the woodwork.
1: Stress, resilience and overcoming adversity are really important parts of life. Uh, you are living this. You're living and breathing this. So thank you from my end. I've learned some, some things about you today that I've known you for 15 years and there's been some moments where I had some of the goosebumps. So thank you for sharing your experience and thank you for providing really good strategies, a blend between science and strategies to our listeners. So Tom Buckley, thank you.
0: My pleasure. Thanks, Andrew.
1: Hey, it's Andrew again and we hope you enjoyed that interview. And just a quick note to remember to please go to nab.com.au slash businessfit. We hope you really like this episode and receive lots of value, and we would love it if you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast, and click on the subscribe button. We'd also really appreciate it if you share it with friends or colleagues you think might also benefit from these messages. And we'd really appreciate if you can rate and review it. We love seeing your messages and love seeing your ratings. Okay, that's it for this time. We look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of NAB Business Fit.